Well, good morning. We are on lesson nine, page 45. So for several weeks now, we've been talking about uh, uh, biblical roles within the church. And so we, for a couple of weeks, we looked at verses that were outlining what those roles are. And then uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been also looking at uh, some alternate views people have put forward using scripture to try to say, well, no, um, men and women are sort of interchangeable. And uh, we saw that those interpretations weren't really consistent with scripture. Well, today, we're going to answer some common egalitarian objections to male headship in general. We've looked first at the family, roles in the family, and most recently, roles in the church. But there are several passages people go to to suggest that, indeed, men and women are interchangeable. Um, So the first one of those is Galatians 3.28. And so what they suggest is that Galatians 3.28 eliminates all gender-specific roles in marriage and in the church. Indeed, it eliminates all racial, social, and gender distinctions in Christ. So Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so if you just read that one verse, uh, you can make it to say all sorts of things that aren't necessarily there, right? So what do we need to do? Look at the context. Look at the context and and the rest of Scripture, exactly. So let's look at the context. The... the, uh, Uh, the broader context of Galatians. Paul wrote the book of Galatians to address a very pressing controversy that was was, um, uh, very widespread in the early church. And that controversy was that a lot of Jews, I think a lot, um, who were Christians, but they, of course they had come out of Judaism, right? Um, they were teaching that in order for the Gentiles to become Christians, basically they first had to become Jews. Or another way of saying it, um, obeying the law, whether it's Jew or Gentile, was a necessary component of Salvation in Christ. All right. So he writes this this whole book, and that's the that's really the topic of Galatians, how to address that. And you might remember in um, in Acts fifteen, um, very early in the church, it was after uh, Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, this question had already come to a head. And so in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas and others joined with um, other apostles and elders in Jerusalem to hold what became known as the first uh, 
council, the Jerusalem council. And that council was convened to address this very issue. Now, that was before, I'm pretty sure it was before Paul wrote Galatians. Uh, so th- this, this situation, this, this controversy uh, had been around because, really, you know, you put yourself in the mindset of the Jews of the early church. Their background was um, to have a very high um, what? A very high view of the purity, let's say, of the people of God. So the Jews, even by the law, were, were required to separate themselves and not be defiled by the ways of the world, right? The, the Gentiles. The Gentiles are everybody except the Jews. Um, and then many of them became Christians, these Jews. And first of all, you might remember even in Acts that um, it was a surprise, I think you could say, to many of the Jews that um, salvation in Christ was even available to Gentiles. And so you remember um, God had to give Peter that vision, right? He's up on the housetop and, and he had that vision of the sheet coming down and, and he saw some clean and unclean animals, or at least unclean. And God told him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Eat these foods that are against the law to eat. And what was Peter's response? No way. You know, but God pressed on him, and this was in a vision, and he he got the message, but he was still swirling all this in his head. I'm sure. But just as he was thinking that uh, through that, um, these messengers came from uh, Caesarea. Cornelius was told in a vision that he should call for Peter and he's going to be in Joppa and and so on. So go find him, bring him here. We want to hear what the Lord is telling us through Peter. And Peter said, ah, God was preparing me for that task to go to this Gentile, this Roman. Um, And when he did that and... um, uh, the centurion and I think his whole family mm-hmm. turned to Christ and it was very obvious that they had become Christians that really helped Peter to see that yes God was God was uh, uh, beginning the process of um, saving Gentiles just like he's been saving Jews and I would imagine Peter would have remembered somewhere along this line here when he was sunk into him that when God promised, when God gave his promises to Abraham way back in Genesis, God said that uh, part of that promise was that Abraham and his offspring, his seed, um, would be a blessing not just to the Jews but even to the Gentiles, the whole world. And God was now fulfilling that. Um, 
So that was a major shift in even the apostles' thinking. It wasn't really on their radar before this time. So they held the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, and uh, by God's grace and his, his giving them discernment, they came to the right conclusion. Uh, Peter, for example, gave his testimony of how, how uh, uh, reminding many of them of how he had this encounter and went to Cornelius and the, the uh, Gentiles came to Christ. Uh, Paul relayed um, some testimonies from his first missionary journey at the Jerusalem Council, uh, sharing the same thing, that uh, the Gentiles were far more receptive even than the Jews were in many cases. Um, so anyway, but that they came to an agreement and... And uh, they, they had a closing uh, message to the Gentiles to encourage them uh, not, not to burden them with all the requirements of the, the Old Testament law, but rather um, to enjoy their life in Christ, to grow in Christ, and, uh, and it's all good. But that didn't eliminate the controversy. And um, so Paul writes this letter to the churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia is, is a region of what is now Turkey. It's not just a city. Um, so there are several churches there, I think. Um, so early in the book of Galatians, um, Paul raises that as a topic that needs to be addressed, right? So in chapter 1, he writes, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only that there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It's not another gospel because what does gospel mean? Good news. What they're preaching is not good news. So it's not really a gospel. Um, in verse 8 he says, um, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, I say to you now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That's very strange, or very strong language, right? It's a serious issue. And then um, in the next chapter, chapter 2, he says, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage, that is, bondage to the law. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. And so he continues, right, that's what they were teaching, that the Old Testament law continued, that we all had, even in Christ, we had to um, come under the law and keep all those, those commandments and everything. Um, 
And so he's saying, no, that's not the case. And he wants to make sure that they understand that. So at some point, even Peter and Barnabas mistakenly fell in with that mindset. And so in Galatians 2, uh, Paul writes, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, that is, uh, James, the brother of Christ, who was leader of the church in Jerusalem, uh, prior to those people coming, um, he used to eat with the Gentiles, which would have been against the law. But when they came, they began to withdraw and hold themselves hold themselves aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision, that is, these people who taught this. The rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. It was sort of their, it was their habit, it was their, their um, upbringing, their training, that that you didn't associate with the Gentiles in something as important as even eating, so uh, so as not to defile themselves. And so they hadn't got their mind around, things are different now in Christ. And um, the, the Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to be saved. And once anyone is saved, even the Jews, they're not subject to the Old Testament law. So he continues with this in chapters 2 through 4. Um, and on the top of page 46, I have an excerpt there. He says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, see how central the, the pure meaning of the gospel is, I said to Cephas, Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So that's kind of a straightforward question, right? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but rather through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. What does it mean to be justified? Declared righteous by God. Yeah. So normally um, when we say someone got saved, Someone became a Christian, someone trusted Christ. At that moment, if that was genuine, um, at that moment, they were justified by God. Not something they did, but they were saved, declared righteous. It's, it's a legal term. Uh, they were made righteous, they were given right standing before God by God's grace. It's a declaration by God. It's not a, a process or um, a, a work that someone does, but um, um, God justifies them. And, and Paul's point here is that no one, whether they're Jews or 
non-Jews, is justified by anything but grace, God's grace. It's not by works. It's not by something we do to earn it, right? Um, In verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He didn't have to die if we can earn it ourselves, right? Um, Now, you know, we read that, we say, well, yeah, but back then, those people who who had come out of Judaism, and were still in, basically, Judaism, even though many of them had become Christians, it's hard to shake that mindset about what is the purpose of the law. And we we didn't really carry that baggage with us into our Christian life, but they did. And they had to work through that. And Paul was really strong about, you got to get this, guys, right? Don't be misled. Yeah, we have our own baggage, don't we? <laughs> yeah, their baggage, at least a lot of them, coming out of Judaism was um, habits, convictions, training. This is all their mindset, right? And it's, it was hard for them to um, make that adjustment and Paul, in Galatians particularly, and certainly in Romans and elsewhere, um, helped to kind of set the record straight. And uh, we're the beneficiaries of it, but they had to wrestle with it in real time. You know, they were going through it. So, uh, here on the top of page 46, I uh, continue a little summary from the book of Galatians. So we ended here in Galatians 2.21, but then you pick up in Galatians 3, verse 1, where the message is that we are justified and sanctified. What is sanctified? Actually, it's used in two ways in in Scripture. Uh, He's probably using it both ways here. Um, The sanct in sanctification is the root is holy, like a um, sacred or sanctuary, it's something that's set apart. And so a, um, uh, when someone uh, trusts Christ, he is justified at a moment in time. And scripture says that we are sanctified in two different ways. One is because we're justified, God places us in Christ and we are eternally secure in Christ, and our sins have all been, past, present, and future, are transferred to Christ. So what's left? We are holy in God's eyes because we have the righteousness of Christ transferred to us. So that all happens immediately with respect to our position before God. But it doesn't happen immediately with respect to our experience day to day, right? We're still, we're still overcoming all that sin baggage in our lives. And that process is also called sanctification. Uh, we're, our position is sanctified, but our process is becoming sanctified, becoming more and more like Christ. We, we don't sanctify ourselves, but we need to cooperate with what God is doing to sanctify us, right? So, um, 
It's a work of the Holy Spirit in each believer. That's one reason he indwells us. Um, but you know what the word saint means? Holy one. It means someone is holy. The, again, it's the same root here. It's, it's all about holiness. How could we be referred to as saints when we have all that sin baggage? It's because of our position in Christ. Our, our position is um, sanctified. Past tense, it, we were sanctified really at the time of salvation. But um, we, we grow into it. We grow into our experience of being more and more Christ-like, uh, more and more separate from sin, uh, more and more able to um, not give in to the temptations of sin and those kinds of things. That's a progressive aspect of our sanctification in real life. But our position is already completely sanctified in Christ. Of course, all of our sins were future when Christ paid for them on the cross, right? Um, and we're still working through that process of um, what's required on our part in that, in that process of sanctification. Well, we pray, read the Bible. Yes, so we're, we're trusting him. We're... we're depending on him rather than our own wisdom, our own strength, our own logic, whatever. We're learning to um, um, allow him really to live his life through us. And in the process, what does he do? He chips away that sin Mm -hmm. and he makes us more and more like Christ. Uh, and, And that process is unique really for each believer um, and depending on you know your situation and what kind of baggage you've brought into the Christian life, uh, but it, the process is the same. He's he's the one working to make us more like Christ. And uh, one of the one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is, on the one hand, to encourage, right. On the other hand, to point out sin, to convict mm-hmm. of sin. Um, you've all experienced that probably, right? Um, a non-believer won't usually have that conviction of sin. And so don't be discouraged. It's, it's a good sign that God is working on you, that he convicts you of some sin. Now, why does he do that? Just to make you feel bad? Yeah. No. He convicts us of sin so that what? We'll forsake it. And the more and more we forsake the sin by his strength, the more we become like Christ. The more sanctified, the more holy we become. Um, None of us, I'm sure, will be completely holy, even by the time uh, the Lord takes us. But when he does take us, then... We will. <laughs> all those, all that baggage will be gone, and we'll not only be away from the temptations, but we'll be like him, like Christ. I, I think of you know Philippians, where um, you know it, it gives the example of Christ's submission um, to the point of death, mm-hmm. right? So just that whole sanctification process—it's not just 
pointing at the sin, but our our process of submission to to you know what the Holy Spirit is moving in our hearts, so that we can be like Christ as His example, you know, to the point of death, um, so that we can be made right with God. Yeah, yeah, and the example of Christ. Um, and Philippians is a good example of that. Um, it may seem strange to us, but but Christ repeatedly said that um, everything he did was in submission to the Father. Mm-hmm. And we may think, well, yeah, that's that's because he was Christ, but. Actually, he was an example for us. Everything we do should be in submission to the Father as well. And the sanctification process moves that that needle, if you were, will, from I'm in charge, me, versus God's in charge. And um, every time we sin, what are we saying? I'm in charge. Mm-hmm. So, anyway... Um, Maybe since we're on this point, I can bring it full circle here. There are three aspects of our salvation. We talked about two of them. Justification means we're we're saved from the penalty of sin. God pronounces us justified. It's a judicial term. It happens at a a point in time. Sanctification, particularly the second aspect of it, is the process of being saved from the power of sin in our lives here and now. So we're saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. The third part of it is called in Scripture glorification, where we are saved from even the presence of sin. Of course, that happens not here on earth. It happens when we are with him, right? So salvation is being saved from the penalty of sin, the, um, the power of sin, sanctification, and glorification is being saved from the presence of sin for eternity. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? So, Paul's here speaking very much about justification and to some extent, sanctification. So we're justified and sanctified, how? By hearing with faith, not by keeping the law. So, the Ten Commandments are a good example. Uh, there are lots of commands, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that are very important, very operable. Um, but you remember, Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you won't see the kingdom of God. Now, what is righteousness? Having right standing with God, doing the right thing. So in Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, righteousness and justice are pretty much synonymous. They're often used in the same sentence as interchangeable. Um, To do justice is to do righteousness. Righteousness is all about doing the right thing. But it's very related to holiness, which is not doing. Holiness is being. So when Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees' righteousness, now stop right there. 
were the Pharisees righteous? No. Actually, actually, they were they were doing the right things for the most part, but they were doing it for the wrong reasons. They were doing it to check off lists. Yep, did that. Yep, yep, yep. It's all about me doing those things, right? They were also doing wrong. They were doing some wrong things too, and they were following and, and proud of their following man-made laws, thinking that would just heap on grace of you know. No, no they weren't thinking grace. Heap on God's approval of them. Look at me, I'm an upstanding Pharisee, you know. Um, so it was all built on pride all built on superficial outward keeping of the law and their standards rather than a heart that was devoted to God. And so Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll not see the kingdom of God. I can guarantee you the people who heard him right then said, whoa, who could be more righteous than the Pharisees? This is hard, right? But what's Jesus saying? He's saying, Yes, you need to do the right things, but you need to do it from the heart, and ultimately, you need to do it by the strength of God, not by your own strength. And that's hard, because I think all of us have this natural tendency to do things to show ourselves acceptable to God. But our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. All, everything that we would do out of our own strength, even if it's to keep all the law completely like the Pharisees, it amounts to nothing. If it's, if it's not from a transformed heart that is submitted to God, seeking his power to live rather than doing it in our own strength. So, um, yes, those... Those good works are crucial evidences that our heart has been changed. You remember what we see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. But do you know what the next verse is? Verse 10. <laughs> Which says, um, for we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the point is that the works don't, aren't a requirement for salvation. There's no work that we could do to earn salvation. But those good works are the result of salvation as we allow Christ to live his life through us. So yes, the righteousness is important, but it ought to be, by God's, the only way it can happen, really, is it being the righteousness of Christ through us, rather than our righteousness generated by ourselves. Right? So it's the result of our salvation. It's evidence of our salvation. That's what James is talking about. Um, And not the prerequisite for salvation. And so Paul's addressing some of those same issues right here. We're justified and sanctified by hearing and with faith, not by keeping the law. Then he uses the example of Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith many years before the law, 
And God's promise to him was that both his descendants and all the other nations, including the Gentiles, would be blessed if they followed Abraham's example of faith. That's in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Then he says, uh, or I'm paraphrasing him here, however, the law which came much later places people under a curse because it reveals their sin and their separation from God. So what was the purpose of law? To get people's attention. Sin is abhorrent to God. It separates us from God. It's um, pervasive. And it has to be dealt with. And um, the law included the, um, the sacrifice of animals. Um, not that those sacrifices in and of themselves accomplished anything in terms of justification or sanctification, but the purpose of those laws and even the animal sacrifice was to show people that sin is pervasive in them. Uh, It's abhorrent to God. God cannot accept sin at all. And those two things alone should convince people, whoa, then how can I come into a relationship with God? Exactly, that's the point. The contrast between God's holiness and man's sinfulness was just a a continual reminder all the time because of the sacrifices. And they should have gotten it just from those two points. But what those sacrifices also did was to picture what God's solution ultimately would be, right? The, the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed for all of us, had to be without spot or blemish, that is, without sin. Um, and it wasn't an animal, because an animal can't take away our sin. It can cover our sin, but it can't take it away. But the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, Christ. God was using that whole system to help people see uh, just how holy God is and how sinful they are. And that sin leads to death. And that sin leads to death, that there needs to be a penalty for our sin, and that the promised Messiah one day would do that. So Paul here in Galatians is reminding them of that whole purpose that God had in that Old Testament system. Um, and so point number four there, the whole point of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf was to take that curse upon himself so that even the Gentiles can be saved just as Abraham was by grace through faith. Salvation has always been by grace through faith, whether it was in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament. Today, it's always by God's grace through faith. And number five, the promise given to Abraham, and therefore salvation by grace through faith alone, could not have been nullified by the law. Because God's promise was long before the law, and as Paul says here in verses 15 through 18, the the new covenant, that is the law, didn't and couldn't take away the promise that was given to Abraham. The promise given to Abraham was um, unconditional. God didn't say to Abraham, if you keep my law, of course, that law wasn't revealed, 
if you keep my law or do such and such, then you will have these promises. No, God just says, this is what I'm going to do. This is my promise to you, Abraham. And uh, Paul points back to that as evidence that the law had no role whatsoever in Abraham's salvation, and it has had no role in anybody's salvation other than perhaps pointing them to the need for a savior. That's really the, the purpose. And in fact, that's what he says here in number six, my summary here from chapter three, verses 19 to 24 is therefore the purpose of the law was to show us our sin and our need for a savior in whom we would place our faith for salvation. So, He's just driving home. This whole book is just driving home on that that controversy, that important issue. And then we come up to the the immediate context of our verse in question. So in verse 25 of chapter 3, he says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What was the tutor? The law. Right? For you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're a male or a female. Uh, slave or free. The original purpose of the law has now been fulfilled, so neither Jews nor Gentiles need to follow follow it as a condition in order to gain justification. That never was the case, and it still isn't the case. Um, And then B, anyone who is baptized into the body of Christ, that is, who baptizes us into the body of Christ? God does at the moment of salvation. He places us in Christ when we place our faith in him. Uh, water baptism is just an outward testimony that that's what's already happened in my life, right? So anyone who is baptized into the body of Christ, that is a true Christian, has the righteousness of Christ imputed to him, clothed with Christ, as it's referred to here. Therefore, no additional righteousness can be obtained by keeping the law. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, but the righteousness of Christ is what God accepts. And that's ours in Christ. So when he gets to verse 28, says we are all one in Christ Jesus, that means that justification and sanctification are accomplished in the same way by grace through faith for everyone, no matter one's prior religious or social standing. Gentiles are justified and sanctified in the very same way as Jews and therefore do not need to keep the law in addition to that in order to gain justification. Same thing with slave, free, doesn't matter. Male, female, doesn't matter. All receive salvation the same way. That's his whole point in the whole book. Let me go to the top of page 47. So during this whole... Um, well, the whole book of Galatians, but even well, certainly up till now in chapter three, um, 
Paul was addressing the question of the Jew-Gentile distinctions in Christ. And this verse, 28, is the first time he even mentions male and female. The whole thing has been uh, that the Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to become Christians. And so why does he even make reference here to male or female or slave or free? He's emphasizing there's just no distinction in how people get saved, right? We all come to Christ, we're all sanctified in the exact same way. Um, And when he says, for you are all one, he's saying that there's just one method. God doesn't have um, multiple methods, And none of those methods requires becoming righteous so that we can become acceptable to God. That's that's our old hang-up. None of us can do that. But it's becoming righteous because we are saved. And we're becoming righteous by God's power. So, you know, there were distinctions between male and female under the law. Right? Um, and there were clear distinctions between slave and free. But he says in Christ, particularly in in the process of becoming a Christian, or the the act of becoming a Christian, the justification and the sanctification, it's identical, and the law has no part in it. Uh, That was to lead us to Christ. Once we have Christ, we no longer need that tutor is the point. Any questions, thoughts so far? His examples there aren't inherently about justification or sanctification other than he's saying that everyone, it doesn't matter what your standing is, whether you're male or female, slave or free, or Jew or Gentile or whatever, everyone comes to Christ the same way, by grace, through faith, not by works of the law. Any other questions? Yes. So in the Old Testament law, you've got both um, moral law, like the Ten Commandments, and ceremonial law, like circumcision, sacrifices, and whatnot. And neither one of those saves us. But um, the, the ceremonial portions of the law were fulfilled in Christ. The moral aspects of the law are eternal. I mean, they're just a reflection of God's character and our being holy and so on. It's not a requirement for salvation, but it should be evidenced by our salvation. Right? So... Those th- the, keeping the Ten Commandments and the other moral aspects of God's law um, ought to become more and more true of us when we are in Christ. And he makes us more like himself. Uh, so they're still important. They're still a part of God's morality and what is true and right. But they don't make us saved. They should be evidence that we are saved. Yeah, some of the things that I think... Um, to to Christian, you know, to to the detriment of the Christian faith is that 
there are a lot of people who say they're Christians, but live by the world, right? right? And so there's no evidence in their life that the Holy Spirit is working to make them more like Christ. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who are not saved that look at them and say, well, he's a Christian, she's a Christian, you know, and they do that, so why, you know, what's the difference? Right. right? And so... So it should be true that if we're genuinely saved, there's going to be evidence of that in our lives. Evidence, particularly of things that, um, well, like Ephesians 2.10, it's, it's the works that God has created for us to walk in having been saved, not as a condition to be saved. And the more we rely on him and his strength and his direction in life, the more we forsake sin, repent of it, and take on um, Christ-likeness, that should be evident. People should see that. Um, Is it possible to do some of that in your own strength? Yeah, look at the Pharisees. But um, God looks at the heart. And he knows whether it's genuine or not. Well, we need to move on to our second example here on page 48. And that is, well, what about Deborah? You remember Deborah in the book of Judges? What about Deborah? Doesn't she provide an ex- a positive precedent for female leadership of God's people? She was a prophetess and a judge. Um. So let me go ahead and read Judges 4, 1 through 9 here. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, you remember the book of Judges where, where uh, you've got this kind of cycle that happens where um, the people come in, into bondage by some other group of people. And God raises up for them a, a, a leader a judge who helps them to um, usually defeat those oppressors. And then there's a time of, of uh, prosperity and, and, and joy, but then there's, there's um, again, sin, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they get oppressed again, and there's this cycle that just keeps going around and around, and God raises up numerous judges to... Um, bring them back into uh, harmony with him, or at least more than it was. Um, And so in the midst of that, the Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see this again and again and again process. Uh, After Ehud died, Ehud was the previous judge. Verse 2, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagayim. So, how do they come under bondage? God sold them into bondage because of their disobedience, to teach them a lesson. He was scolding them, right? Verse 3, the sons of Israel cried to the Lord again, for he had 900 he, that that other king had 900 iron chariots and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. 
Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. In other words, um, much like they came to Moses to have their disputes adjudicated and, and to um, settle arguments and so on. And uh, verse 6, Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and mount, march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and I will draw out to you Sisera, God is saying to him, through Deborah, uh, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and as many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I'll go, but if you're not, ixnay, not going. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor, that is the honor of defeating him, shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And that woman's not her, it's somebody else. Then Deborah arose and went back and went with Barak to Kadesh. So what do we see? If you look at this section here, plus the, the rest of Judges, Deborah faithfully served God during a very, another very low point in Israel's history. That's true. She was uh, very commendable in that, probably more so than most of the Judges, in, in fact. Uh, she settled disputes wisely, she delivered God's message to Barak. Um, she showed courage by accompanying Barak and the 10,000 men into battle. And she demonstrated great faith in God and encouraged Barak to do the same. She joined Barak in a song of praise and thanksgiving to God after he delivers them, as she foretold. However, Deborah affirmed male leadership as the norm. She herself did not call the people to battle or lead them into battle. She encouraged Barak to do this. And she agreed to accompany Barak, but rebuked him for not being the one to lead. And she had to, she had to nudge him, kicking and screaming, <laughs> essentially. Um, so... The point is that Deborah did not rule over, publicly teach, or militarily lead God's people at all. The judgment that she gave was a private, was in a private settling of disputes as people voluntarily came to her for arbitration. Um, she was known as being a wise and fair person, and so people would say, "Well, let's go to Deborah, see what her her position is on this." Um, and there's nowhere, no, no reference anywhere that she taught God's people spiritual truth. She was a prophetess, but that's not teaching. It's just declaring what God said to the people God said to tell it to, like in this case, Barak. Um, and she wasn't a priest who would have the role of teaching. 
she did not assemble Israel's army nor lead them into battle. She merely went with them to the place of the battle. In fact, she insisted that Barak lead them, consistent with God's message. So ultimately, it was Barak who assembled the armies and led them. And so, picking up in verse 14, says, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. She doesn't even say our hands. She says your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot. He got down and went away by foot, maybe because he could be more uh, less noticeable that way. Um, so without his armies, Sisera was your basic chicken. So therefore, it, it was Barak, not Deborah, who was honored in Hebrews 11, you know, the hall of faith where God commends those from previous times who trusted God and so on. It doesn't mention Deborah. It mentions Barak as the one who stepped out in faith. Uh, it, it took a lot of nudging from Deborah, but he did it. Um, so the Bible presents Deborah's service as a judge, as a rebuke given to the lack of male leadership in Israel at that time. Uh, it introduces her by saying, and Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she was judging Israel at that time. Kind of bending over backwards to show this is not normal, guys, uh, but God worked even through Deborah to accomplish his purposes. And Deborah rebuked Brack's timidity about leading Israel in battle. Um, he says, she said, it, it, it'll be a woman, because of his timidity, it'll be a woman into whose hands Sisera will fall. And that woman, you remember, was Jael. Um, she stumbled upon, I guess, Sisera while he was um, sleeping. And she drove a tent peg through his temple. You remember that picture? kind of gruesome but um, so she goes down in history as the one who killed this mighty general in Deborah's song of praise with Barak she expressed surprise that a man hadn't arisen within Israel to do what she had done in verse 7 of chapter 5 it says the, the peasantry ceased they ceased uh, in Israel until I Deborah arose until I a mother in Israel it's something of a a rebuke there. Now, it's also important to, to look at how the other judges, both before her and after her, were um, characterized. And um, in Judges 3, for example, when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Um, Deborah's not referred to as a deliverer. And he judged Israel. And when he went out to war, the Lord gave this other king from Mesopotamia into his hands so that he prevailed over him. 
So in that case, the judge was leading them out in battle. And then in Judges 3.15, when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord again, the Lord raised up another deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. Um, and the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Uh, so his role was a little bit different. And, um, and then in Judges 6, we get Gideon. You all remember Gideon. He was also pretty timid and not sure he was going to um, uh, succeed and so on. But anyway, he led them in battle and uh, the Lord delivered them. So it was a different role. Later in Judges 11, there's an example here of Jephthah I'm on top of page 30, uh, 50, I'm sorry. Um, now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh then he passed through Mizpah and Gilead and from uh, from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. So it specifically says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him I think as a prophetess something very similar must have been happening with her as well with Deborah. Um, and then of course Samson kind of the, the uh, notorious Samson. But it says the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. So anyway, each one of them has sort of their own role in that very dark period of Israel's history. And um, our conclusion is that although Deborah is a good example a fantastic example of faith, obedience, service, and courage. She's not a precedent for women taking leadership upon themselves when men are passive and inactive. Following Deborah's example, women in these situations should instead encourage the men to fulfill their God-given leadership roles. That's the lesson of Deborah. A great example. Yeah, and it's not just that it was her idea to have a man do it. It was that that's what God told her to do. To to tell this to Barak that he should go out and and lead the army in battle, and that uh, God was going to deliver them. They just had to go out in faith. And so she performed that role well. She even agreed to go with him, but it wasn't like she was leading the troops in battle. It was always Barak. Very much so. God has a sense of humor. God orchestrated that whole thing, obviously. Um, but, you know, the, the common phrase throughout the book of Judges is there was no king in Israel at that time, and everybody did what? What was right in their own eyes. Which means helter-skelter, not really following God. And um, that's in the Bible... As a warning to us. They, they were doing their truth. Yeah, their truth. <laughs> what was good in their own eyes. Exactly. Well, we better close here. It's about time to head to worship. Um, let's pray.